0: This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today I'd like to talk about contract interpretation and the doctrine of reasonable expectations of the insured as they were developed in the decisions of the various courts dealing with claims resulting from the act of infamy at the World Trade Center in New York City on September 11, 2001. That act of infamy is responsible for a great deal of insurance litigation concerning, among other things, the meaning of the term occurrence in first-party property policies and the methodology required of insurers when interpreting a policy of insurance. In the World Trade Center policies, occurrence was defined as follows, occurrence shall mean all losses or damages that are attributable directly or indirectly to one cause or to one series of similar causes. All such losses will be added together, and the total amount of such losses will be treated as one occurrence irrespective of the period of time or area over which such loss occur. Because World Trade Center insurance issues are surrounded by the horrendous facts of the attack, and due to the fact that some policies had yet to be printed and delivered to the insured before September 11, 2001, the decisions rendered in interpreting the policies had far-reaching impact. The rulings in the WTC cases, combined with the decision of the California Supreme Court, are changing how insurance policies are interpreted. Since policy interpretation is essential to the presentation of any insurance claim. The following detailed discussion is important to all those concerned with insurance claims. Reasonable expectations does not mean, however, that the expectations of the insured can change or modify the clear and unambiguous language of the policy of insurance. The Third Circuit found in Canal Insurance versus Underwriters against the insured's claim of reasonable expectations, finding that the context of the case before it, the refusal to look beyond the plain meaning of the unambiguous exclusionary language to the insured sing's reasonable expectations, is consistent with the interpretation of Pennsylvania case law. For example, a case decided over 200 years ago made the point that the reasonable expectations of the insured include the understanding that every insurer is presumed to be acquainted with the practice of the trade he insures. If he does not know it, he ought to inform himself. Similarly, more than 150 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court in Hazard's Administrator v. New England Marine Insurance, an 1834 decision, adopted the rule. It concluded that no injustice is done if insurers are presumed to know their insured's industry because it is part of their ordinary business. In the spring of 2001, Silverstein Properties entered into negotiations for World Trade Center insurance. And Silverstein was the successful bidder on a 99-year lease for a piece of property owned by the New York Port Authority. In July of 2001, Silverstein Properties obtained primary and excess insurance coverage for the World Trade Center complex from about two dozen insurers in the total of amount of approximately $3.5 billion billion dollars per occurrence. In World Trade Center Properties versus Hartford Fire, a 2003 decision of the Second Circuit, that Court of Appeals attempted to settle some of the differences between the property owners and the insurers on how to apply the wording of the policies to the facts of the destruction of the World Trade Center it found that a binder, temporary insurance pending issuance of a policy, is an enforceable contract in its own right. The primary issue for the Second Circuit to decide was the amount of insurance recoverable for the total destruction of the World Trade Center that occurred after the building was struck by two fuel-laden aircraft that had been hijacked by terrorists. Silverstein Properties sought the proceeds of various insurance policies and claimed that there were two separate crashes, allowing them to collect the policy's limit for each separate incident. Since policies had not been issued and coverage was held covered under binders, the meaning of the wording and the wording itself was disputed. Hartford Royal and St. Paul insurance companies issued some of the policies covering the World Trade Center. The ground for summary judgment was the trial court's conclusion that each of the three insurers, Hartford, Royal, and St. Paul insurance companies, had issued a binder that incorporated the terms of A form called the will prop form under the will prop forms definition of occurrence there was only one occurrence on September 11 2001 because the only policy form before the parties during these negotiations was the will prop form furnished by Willis a surplus line broker the district court concluded that as a matter of law, each of the three insurers had bound coverage on the basis of the will prop form rather than, as the Silverstein parties contended, the traveler's form. In reaching its decision, the Second Circuit noted that the general practice among insurers was that in many instances an excess insurer will voluntarily bind itself to another insurer's policy form that has been issued but that it has chosen not to look at, despite the opportunity to do so, and that courts will presume the insurer knows and assents to the terms of the unseen document. A binder is, by definition, incomplete in some respects, or a later formal policy would be unnecessary. New York courts have long de- recognized terms must often be implied to determine the obligations which the parties intended to be bound. This is Hicks v. British American Insurance Company, a 1900 decision of the New York's appellate courts. To determine the contents of a binder, New York courts generally look to the specific terms contained in the binder or incorporated by reference, and to the extent necessary as gap fillers, the terms included in the usual policy currently in use by the insurance company or those required by statute. A binder normally incorporates all the obligations according to the terms of the policy in ordinary use by the issuing company. The court examines the negotiations between the insured and the insurers to determine what terms the parties intended to incorporate into the binder. Often courts rely on extrinsic evidence, presented by the parties about their pre-binder negotiations to explain the terms of the agreement, since a binder seldom states them, and to understand the party's intent. Usually, any policy form that was exchanged in the process of negotiating the binder, together with any expressed modifications to that form, is likely the most reliable indication of the terms the parties intended to be bound by, while the binder was in effect. If there is no policy form exchanged or sufficient extrinsic evidence of the negotiations to determine the party's intentions, the terms will be implied likely will be customary uh, terms of the insurer's own form, concluding that the policies of the three insurers were based on the will prop form. The Second Circuit stated, quote, our conclusion is supported by the fact that until the total destruction of the World Trade Center on September 11th, it was in Silverstein's property's interest to incorporate into their insurance coverage a definition of occurrence that would minimize the number of occurrences, in order, therefore, to minimize the number of deductibles that would apply in the event of a loss or series of losses. This goal was accomplished by the Willprop form's inclusive definition of occurrence. When travelers held out for using its own form in its negotiations with Willis, in August of 2001, Timothy Boyd, a vice president of Willis, reported that fact to a co-broker, stating, although other players have signed binders based on Willprop, Travelers is insisting we use their form, and this is under review. Apart from its potential as a party admission." The statement that players other than travelers have signed binders based on will prop, made by the Silverstein Party's agent on August 3, 2001, after the binders were in place and before the WTC was destroyed, is consistent with our review of the binder negotiations. Close quote the Second Circuit refused to create an ambiguity where none existed. It concluded that the definition of occurrence in the will-prop form was, in light of the facts surrounding the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack, clear and unambiguous. Since the attacks were attributable directly or indirectly to one cause, or to one series of similar causes. The Second Circuit held, quote, Although the Silverstein parties attempt to argue that this definition is ambiguous, we agree with the district court that no finder of fact could reasonably fail to find that the intentional crashes into the World Trade Center of two hijacked airplanes, 16 minutes apart, as a result of a single coordinated plan of attack was at least a series of similar causes accordingly we agree with the district court that under the will prop definition the events of september 11 constitute a single occurrence as a matter of law Close quote. "travelers refuse to accept the will prop form Instead, it insisted on its own policy wording that did not include a definition of the term occurrence. Neither the policy issued after September 11, 2001, nor the negotiations leading up to it included the will prop definition of occurrence. Rather, the negotiations for the policy started on June 7, 2001, When James B. Coyle III, an underwriter at Travelers, received an email from Willis, the broker, that included both the underwriting submission for the WTC and the will prop form, Coyle averred in a declaration filed with the court that he responded to Boyd's offer by stating that if Travelers were to participate in the primary layer, it would insist on using its own form but the travelers would agree to use the will prop form if travelers participated only in the excess layers. At deposition, Boyd testified that he told Coyle that if travelers would permit changes to its form to meet Silverstein Properties' needs, Silverstein properties would accept the traveler's form. After July 18, the parties reviewed both the will prop and traveler's forms to identify the areas of difference between the two forms. They found more than 76 differences as a starting point for negotiating the terms of the final policy form. The list did not identify the presence or absence of a definition of occurrence as a point of difference between the two. During the next several weeks, the parties met to negotiate policy terms and exchange drafts of the policy. By September 11, however, the parties had not agreed to a final policy form. Following the destruction of the WTC on either September 12 or 13, an agreement was reached to freeze the draft as of that date. On September September 14, 2001, the Traveler's Policy issued for final review and approval by Silverstein Properties its policy. In McKinnon v. Truck Insurance Exchange, a 2003 decision of the California Supreme Court, it first stated the primacy of the Reasonable Expectations Test when interpreting insurance policies. It decided that since a pollution exclusion of a CGL does not plainly and clearly exclude ordinary acts of negligence involving toxic chemicals such as pesticides, the reasonable expectations of the insured required coverage to exist for an ordinary act of negligence, even if it involved pollutants. Although McKinnon dealt specifically with a pollution exclusion, its reasoning may be the parent of new insurance policy analysis. The insured is seeking interpretations that follow its reasonable expectations. And although the Silverstein partners attempted To use reasonable expectations, the courts of appeal found that there was only one occurrence and resolved the issues eventually to allow the partners to receive the $3.5 billion that was the policy limit and not $7 $7 billion. This video was adapted from my book, *Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 101, 3rd Edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and as a paperback from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, My Rumble channel and click on the like button and the rumble button as you do. And please also subscribe to my blog and to my Substack publications so that you can learn about future blog postings and future videos. Thank you for your attention.